These are the yays of our lives. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. Oh, crescendo soup detectus. <laughs> <laughs> If there are any McGrub girls listening, they'll know. <laughs> oh no, that I song just was. I just, you it's know, his Matera Bush subtractors, you idiot. That's pretty much what I said. <laughs> Welcome back to Yays of Our Lives, guys. <laughs> I finally have a voice back after weeks and weeks. <laughs> I was so anal about pre-recording so many episodes so that we wouldn't have a single break during the honeymoon and I managed to upload like two episodes <laughs> a week from Egypt but then had to take a month off when I got home. I know you've had the, you've had a spell of illness, haven't you? I feel like I'm about to lose my voice. I've had a bad run. I've had a bad run. Yeah. You're about to lose your voice because you've been we had a sleepover. What was that car outside? It's a very loud vehicle. Anyway, welcome back, Bim. <laughs> welcome, no, welcome you back. That's <laughs> okay. <in> from Egypt. <laughs> Have you missed us, guys? <laughs> so, as you all know, we've had a little break. Thank you so much for your patience. I just was not well. My voice was not great, and uh, I didn't feel like I could. Bring the full yay for the last couple of weeks, but we're back. So we did have on the schedule a sort of Egypt honeymoon wrap and a catch up. Lots of neighborhood watch stories have happened over the past little while, but then I did a little ask me anything anonymously Q&A and that brought up some fascinating questions. Firstly, just want to say the neighborhood is so lovely. A couple of people who have opened themselves up to anonymous questions have not had a very nice time and I have only had the most respectful, loving, kind curiosity. And I'm so, so grateful for that. But they've also been really interesting questions. Like I've had a lot of reflection. Yeah. Um, I just would like to provide some feedback. <laughs> I submitted an anonymous question and I was tagged in my response. I'm pretty sure that makes it non-anonymous. I'm sorry. <laughs> I lifted the veil on your identity. And you didn't even answer the question. Do you know, if I had done a poll, (laughs) an Instagram-wide poll on who that question was from, there is not even one chance that anyone wouldn't be able to go. I don't even know why I used 5,000 negatives just then. Everyone would have known it was you. Okay, so you didn't answer the question, but I think the- Okay, re-ask. That could be the first one. Deserves an answer. I'm doing it for the people. Um, The question was- do you do silent and deadlies or are you a loud father? I mean, both. I'm That's versatile. A lie. That's a lie. I'm versatile. You were such a silent I'm and deadly. I'm such a silent. Yeah, majority. But I can also do, I can dally. No, you can. You can dally. Do I can dabble. But your loud is still smelly. 
Okay, well, you know, I like to overachieve in all areas. <laughs> but you see, that didn't... Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Start again, gal. Start again. I bet you didn't see that one coming in this episode. I mean, look, I probably could have guessed that you were going to bring it up because you were very passive-aggressive over the fact that I didn't directly <laughs> answer you. <laughs> So we had, seriously, some of the most interesting questions. You guys know that I froth the chance to answer questions about just life, not not necessarily straightforward questions either, like philosophical, reflective questions. So Would You Rather is my favourite game in the entire universe, as Ange loves to join in with but Nick absolutely hates. Um, top fives, if I've ever sat down with you, if I've ever travelled with you on a long like card drive i've probably asked what your top favorite like fruits and vegetables are or and why or modes of transport like i just think you learn so much about a person that you wouldn't get to do so having this many beautiful questions has been a really nice you know chance to reflect for myself um and i answered as many as i could (laughs) with like essay long answers (laughs) because i really wanted to be thorough on Instagram. I was, I was squinting for I was like, you can't the zoom in. I was like, oh my God, I actually I'm dizzy, but very helpful, you know. Well, I am so glad they introduced that new font. You know the default one that now comes up on stories because yeah, it's, it's, bigger. The, it's like narrow, so yeah. it also you can squish more letters in. I was just like, I don't want each one to f- like spill over onto a new frame because there's so many. Anyway, so the ones that I did get a chance to answer, I've saved in a little highlight because um, they were quite detailed answers. But then there were just so many more questions than I expected and I thought we'd pop it in a little episode before we get to our normal years of our lives, which will now be the next episode. Um, and if you want to skip, you know, straight forward to your question, that's totally fine. I'll list them in order so you can kind of find – I might even do a transcript so you can see the time marker of the answer. But I thought for particularly around adoption and fertility and conception, those were the main questions I got. It Instagram really isn't deep enough to kind of get into things. So I've listed them all and divided them all by topic, we've got adoption, fertility slash conception, match maiden, career kind of questions, lifestyle questions, and then some fun fast fire ones at the end. And um, you all know I've tried monologues before and I kind of laugh a lot of my own jokes. So I thought getting <laughs> Ange on board during our, our first catch up sleepover in ages. Yeah, it was so fun. I love it. I used to... Um well, I self-invited myself because, like, you never invite us anywhere anymore as a joke, obviously. And I said, what do you mean? How can I invite you when I'm self-inviting myself? myself to your house? <laughs> you kind uh, of just announced it to both of us. You're yeah, like, I've booked you in. We were your plus one and two. It was really cute. Yeah, and then I made them come to dinner with me so I wasn't lonely. And then I said, I'm going to also then sleep at your house and get the bed ready. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a little Ange Duna and Ange Pillow. And it's we make a little like ant nest. It's yeah, really cute. it's my favorite. Well, no, it's I'm, nice going out to dinner. We haven't done that in ages. It is. I love a weekday off. It's like the old times again. It's like the so okay. Like the old times. Side note: I reckon at the career section, you'll be able to weigh in quite a lot on the questions about sort of being restless and having multi passionate direction, kind of being pulled in different directions. So we'll definitely get into that. But Ange has. Two ADOs at the moment. You work the weekend and then mm, you have two days off. Two deals, yeah, which is so great. And uh, she gets a little taste again of being able to just dress up in carrot costumes <laughs> on Monday. <laughs> That's pretty much what we did before <laughs> this episode. 
<laughs> it's also 1.30 p.m. and we woke up like, all we've done is wake up and eat breakfast. Yeah, that's literally all we've done all day. Oh, and wear a carrot costume. And wear Do a you even care at all? About your work responsibilities. If I, if I had a dollar, every time I dressed up in that costume and you said that exact same phrase. What else like, am I going to say about it? I'm going to be like $4.50, Richard. <laughs> Wait, so I only half mentioned yeah, that Yeah, I want to stop you that one time. <laughs> okay, so let's kick off with adoption. Okay. We had a lot of questions on that and enough questions, I think, that I'm actually going to get a fellow adoptee on to do a full episode because... That'd be really fun. And also I think I'm going to get someone on who's also had their own biological children since then. So stay tuned for a deeper chat and please think about some questions you'd like for that one. But for now, the questions that we were asked are as follows. We, by we, I mean me and the big pimple on my chin. (laughs) Oi, the Katutbahood. The Katutbahood. It's not going to make sense (laughs) to anyone. (laughs) Okay. Once an episode, it's our standard routine that we have one joke that is not funny to anybody else except us. And even if we explain, okay, try and explain it. So a few episodes back when I had my big cold sore, we were laughing because we called it Katut and Katut. Did we call it Katut on we the episode? We called it Katut on, on the, the episode. The Katut Bahood. <laughs> was that on the episode? No. I came to Sarah's house and I was talking about, you know, cold sores and mine gone away and um, Sarah had said something about it. She's like, oh, I'm so sad. The Katut Bahood. And I lost it. I was, You know when you're in the, one of those states where everything's just hilarious? So now that's stuck and Sarah feels like she's got a lot of pimples when she's got like a half of one. I've got a couture Um And so now we call pimples or any kind of facial lumps yeah. appearances um, couture hood as yeah. in the neighbourhood of couture. So <laughs> It doesn't quite doesn't, have the same ring as neighbourhood because couture does not rhyme with nay. <laughs> but it's so funny to us. Oh, please send Sarah pictures of your katutpahood if you oh have any. Oh, my God, that can be the Easter egg in this episode. We have to do more Easter eggs. We do. Okay, this week's Easter egg, please DM us your katutpahood. <laughs> yeah. And also what name you name them. Like some, my pimples used to be Gavin. Yeah. Now before katut became part of the world. Katut and Rhonda. Um, okay, questions. First theme is adoption. First question is... Have I met or would I consider finding my biological or your biological parents? I was like, are you adopted too? I didn't know. <laughs> I don't know what tense you wrote these questions in. Have you met or would you consider finding your oh biological my God. parents? I wrote, I had to retype them all out in order. So I don't know if I like transcribed them properly. Okay. I also, disclaimer, I've probably answered, if you're a regular listener or have listened from the beginning, I've probably answered most of these questions before. So you can skip through if you want to, or maybe my answers have changed. But I feel like if people have asked the question, they might not have been able to find the answer before. So for this first one, I have never met my birth parents and I am not necessarily deeply motivated to do so. I think there's a couple of factors in that. Firstly, in Korea in the 80s when I was adopted, it was obviously a very different country. It was a lot less developed. The 80s in general, documents weren't digitized. It's very difficult. Like logistically, it is very, very difficult, particularly cross-culturally and cross-country adoption. Um, it's very difficult to find out that information. 
So firstly, there's that big hurdle. Often the birth father wasn't even recorded at all. Um, there's sort of societal expectations and stuff that made it difficult to even yeah sometimes that information was never there even if it is I think a lot of people are often motivated by feeling a bit of a gap in their identity I've never felt that I've had the most beautiful upbringing my family uh, my fa- my adoptive family I don't even call them that that feels weird because they're my family I've never had the the feeling of um missing something that often drives that search so no is the short answer but If it was made very easy, like if, for example, you could just tick a box or they turned up on my doorstep, I would not say no. I'd definitely be curious to see them and know what they look like. Medical history is a really big thing that we'll talk about in the context of something else. Um, I would not not be curious. It's just that you've got to really, really want it. For It's taken some people that I know 13, 14 years. Sometimes it opens up wormholes of things you maybe didn't need to know about circumstances of your adoption that could be traumatic, whereas, you know, without knowing that, it doesn't affect my life, the fact that I don't. So, no, I haven't met them and, no, I'm not desperate to. But I have met my foster family and... That was really beautiful. So when once you're adopted, your adoptive family can pay extra for you to be fostered with a family instead, like so you get a family environment instead of being just in the orphanage. And I was with a family, Mrs. Kim, even though everyone in Korea is called Mrs. Kim. There's only five surnames pretty much in Korea. Kim Park, Holloway, um, Lee, Holloway, <laughs> Davidson. <laughs> and I was her first child that she fostered. She's fostered, you know, tens and maybe, I don't even know how many children, but I've been back to meet her and that was really beautiful because she has photos of me when I was little and remembers me as a baby. So it was, that was really special. Um, on the back of that, have you ever wondered how life would have been like if you were in Korea or um, grew up in Korea? Always. I reflect on that all the time. And especially in the 80s, it was a much poorer country the opportunities for women were very different and limited, access to education. Um, You know, there was sex slavery and trafficking and all kinds of things. And, you know, I mean, I haven't researched it enormously, but it could have been a very, very different life. Like mum cries all the time thinking about that. And I think it's what makes me so keen to do so many things is because I am in the back of my mind so acutely aware of how lucky we are to be here. I think everyone who lives in Australia now is lucky to be here, but I have that extra layer of knowing I might not have been. So I'm even more like, well, I can't waste my spot. Like this is such a sliding doors moment. I did nothing to deserve to get adopted. I did nothing to deserve a better chance. And it's as I get older, especially, I think, oh my gosh, you know, you're not... You're born into certain circumstances, but I got to, you know, have another another chance at a better life. Mm. I just love Korea. I'm sorry, I was just Me reflecting too. about my time in Korea. We love it a lot over there. Such um, a cool place. Would you consider adopting yourself? Um, I've already been adopted once. <laughs> um, I don't know if I need to be adopted again. <laughs> I'm sorry, I read that without commas. Would you We're consider so adopting comma, yourself? <laughs> I'm so sorry to the person who submitted that question. Your punctuation was fine. It was totally clear what you meant. Yes, we absolutely would. Uh, I think most of you probably know by now that Nick and I both have adoption in our family. So obviously my brother and I were adopted, but Nick's mum was also adopted and she is also 
uh, has an Asian heritage. She was born in Singapore and she was also, um, you know, she spent a lot of, she, her first sort of home was in an orphanage as well, but she was there until she was 15, I think. And so, you know, it's not foreign to either of us. Not that, like, I think if it hasn't, you don't have an example of a family who's adopted successfully, it would be a lot more intimidating or overwhelming or scary or foreign or whatever it is. But because for us, it's so normal. It's really normalized. Mm. Um, and we really want a family. So if we weren't able to have children ourselves, it would definitely be on the cards. Yeah. I would love to adopt also. I just feel like I don't know. I haven't researched enough. I feel like it's really hard. It's very difficult. Yeah. I don't know what the rules are now, but it's universally difficult. And there are really good reasons for the bureaucracy, like, you know, child yeah, protection and making sure the welfare of the family, you know, what life will they go into in the family that they're being adopted into? But at the same time, I think sometimes it's so strict that yeah. what could be worse than often where they're coming from, which yeah. is, it's really difficult. It's, it's such so, a so messy. Hard balance, isn't it? Because I always think about that being like, it's so hard, but of course that's for the safety of the child, but then it means that maybe they lose that chance of ever being adopted because mm. the process is so hard. Mm. Anywho. And it's extremely expensive. Mm. So some people don't have the option, like they can't have their own children, but they don't necessarily have the funding to be able to do mm. or the or the access, like it's yeah, it it's it's a hard area. Um this is a cute one. From another Korean born Australian girl. Hi. Australian born, however, I've had a white very white upbringing, i.e. hardly any other Asian Australian friends in school, which has naturally extended into adult life. This has sometimes left me feeling weirdly stuck in the middle. Have you ever had similar struggles with identity? That's an amazing question. And I actually just did a wonderful podcast for the weekend briefing with Jamila Rizvi, who has been a guest on CZA uh, and is someone I admire so much. We had a fascinating conversation about just this. So highly recommend you uh, have a listen when that comes out in a few weeks. Shorter answer is absolutely. I've had lots of identity struggles around being a an Asian Australian separate to adoption. Like that already is sort of uh, an interesting cultural heritage to come from where, and, and I mean, you all have had that as well, like putting the adoption side part aside, in any, you know, teenagehood while you're finding yourself, you kind of swing between your heritage, but also the culture you live in and like honoring and keeping some parts of your background, but also embracing Australian culture. Like it's, it's hard for anyone who's got two or three or multiple different backgrounds, add adoption to it. And the fact that we don't actually have parents who are preserving the Korean heritage or culture for us, but also our connection to it is kind of lost. It's even kind of messier. So it's definitely been something that's taken me a long time to navigate. Um, it helps that the that our family have been so supportive of whichever way we happen to be swinging. Like, you know, there have been years where I really wanted to explore my Koreanness, And when we were children, we went to Han Ho, which is a like a Korean playgroup where you learn Korean nursery rhymes and you get to wear your hanbok and you can learn all about your culture. But then if we didn't want to go, they didn't force us. And uh, they've taken us back to Korea so that we could investigate that culture more if we wanted to. And then there have definitely been times where I've kind of tried to suppress it because one of, you know, I think that comment, uh, the person who asked mentioned they in school had a lot of non-Asian friends just because, and I had exactly the same all the way up until McRobb, so mm. up until year nine. So I was very much like, let's assimilate, let's be really bogan and let's, you know, not like kind of suppress 
the Asian things about me. Like anything that was really stereotypically Asian, I wouldn't do. I'd dress in a really different way. I wouldn't listen to any K-pop, like, you know, all of those kinds of things. And then at McRob, suddenly it was so natural to have a different culture and be really proud of it. So then I was like, oh, like, shit, what's being Korean mean? Yeah. And how, how cool is that? I love and McRob for that. It, it was a, an amazing place to find yourself and just yeah. stop having hang-ups about trying to be everyone else because everyone was weird in their own way. Yeah, so, yeah. I It's weird, though, because as much as we're very much the same Asians being brought up in Australia, sometimes I find myself saying to you things like, oh, well, growing up Asian as if you didn't grow up Asian because – you kind of didn't grow up I didn't. Asian. Yeah. And sometimes I'd say things to Sarah. Uh, you'd ask me, like, oh, how did you, you know, what was dinner like growing up? And I'd say, well, we'd have one bowl of rice and there'd be food in the middle. And then you pick that middle food into the rice and that's mm. how you had meals or whatever it is. And you didn't really grow up with that. It's, it was very much a um, Western diet even. Mm. I was lucky, though. I grew up with Benoit living with us. So it was hard to not maintain a lot of um, culture. Yeah, which is so yes. beautiful. I think but, that's so yeah. beautiful. I just sometimes get myself, I catch myself being like, oh, I talk about growing up Asian as if Sarah didn't grow up Asian, despite being Asian. Mm. But then obviously you didn't. And so it's this, mm. we- like, it's just it's weird. strange, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it sits funny. And do you know how that manifests for me now? That I did grow up Asian in that I got treated as mm. an Asian by others, but internally in my brain, I didn't have the same cultural upbringing experience as I would have in an Asian family. So I kind of have that experience of maybe racism or discrimination or just questions about difference without identifying with the culture that it comes from, which is weird. Yeah. And now I get a lot of sort of lovely comments about representing people of colour on TV or, you know, that kind of representation piece. And then I feel like an imposter in that situation. I f- don't feel like I can fly the flag for Asian Australians because I didn't grow up with Asian parents. So I s- sort of feel like, oh, that's really lovely that you think that. And I I do think we should all look at the media and see ourselves. And I, when I was younger, I wanted to see Asian looking people. But then I also don't feel like I'm Asian enough to kind of be yeah. that. But do you know what I mean? It's so I know weird. What you mean. I know what you mean. But I don't think you should ever feel like an imposter. I think there's different types of diversity. One is physical and how mm. you look and how you feel. And also, I don't know, like you don't necessarily have to be, you know, the be all end all of that particular culture. Mm. But it still provides a lot of great diversity. Yeah. Visually, even yeah. on a TV screen. But on the back of what you said before about racism, have you actually ever experienced casual racism? And if so, do you have any of that? you know, you remember quite vividly? A lot more during primary school. I think society generally has come a long way and I'm not saying that we don't have a lot further to go, but I think the conversation around people of colour and embracing diversity and multiculturalism has come a long way from like tokenism to meaningful conversations and big changes institutionally and that's amazing. Um, There's so much more representation in the media um, but when I was in primary school, there wasn't. And, you know, in Dolly Magazine and on Home and Away and Neighbours and all those kinds of things, I wouldn't see anyone who looked like me and did have a lot of I, – I think sometimes it was kids teasing each other and it just happened to be about my eyes being small or something. Not necessarily because they understood it was a race thing. It was more like Difference. the same way we'd tease someone with ginger hair. Like it was just kids being kids. And then sometimes it was curiosity that felt like racism, like people being like – 
What's that food? Or? Yeah, what's that? Like, except I didn't have the food thing, but yeah. I did have the like, you know, um, like the eyes thing was such a big thing. I remember people always being like, can you even see? Or like, why your eyes look like that? Or the from an adoption perspective it was like, why don't your parents look like mm. you? You know, those kinds of questions. And it's hard to say it was racism because kids are, are curious about difference. But towards our older years, it definitely, it was more casual and probably more s- subtle um, but I, I have had more overt examples over time. And I think so one of the questions I did answer this on Instagram, so you can go and look at the highlight, but I think you have to remember as with any kind of difference, it reflects much more about the person than it does on you. And it doesn't mean that it's okay. And it doesn't mean that they shouldn't change, but sometimes you, you can't also be an activist and try and change everyone for the better because you'll have no energy left. So if you can learn how to Step in and educate where you think it's going to make a difference, um, but also not take it as any reflection on your own value if you can't make a difference or you can't speak up because of complicated reasons. If it's in the workplace, there are definitely official uh, courses of action you can take and you definitely should. Um, And there was a question about more casual racism, and I think there are a lot of colloquial ways that things have become ingrained that are inherently racist that we still kind of laugh at and don't Mm. really realise they're not okay. And I think it's everyone needs to have a safe space to learn and to be pulled up on it and then change their behaviour. And everyone also needs to feel comfortable to be able to pull people up and know that they're going to be, you know, not take it badly. I think just the more you are compassionate and patient but also use your platforms to educate in a a way that's going to help people change is... Yeah. Yeah. It's a hard. It's again another hard one. Yeah. Because second part to that question was how do you handle it when you see it from friends? But you kind of did just answer it. I'm the worst with handling it because I, I wouldn't say I'm an instigator of casual racism because I would never be. But sometimes I make jokes that I am so used to perhaps because I sometimes say it before someone else says it. So it just like you preempt it. So it kind of makes yeah, it, it kind fine. Of just breaks the barrier. Being yeah. Like, like diffuses it. Yeah. Like. If someone asked me to do a math equation, I'll be like, just because I'm Asian yeah. or, you know, just kind of like, I don't know, add levity, but also and, and then at the same time that almost eggs people to feel like they can. That's so, really also say interesting. That. So it's a bit tricky because I'm just a larrikin in general. Yeah. And it's not malicious and I don't mean any malice when I say it, but I have, I think I've slowly come to realise that that actually doesn't help the situation. So it's a bit, yeah, it's kind of tricky making those kinds of jokes. That's a really good point because anyone who's hung out with me before will know I do that too. I do it I all the time. I definitely do it. And I do it in a way that is kind of self-defense. Like you're yeah. almost preempting like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, diffusing the situation right. by just saying it first. And there, But there are some situations where you kind of need to acknowledge with levity, i.e. when I'm getting my makeup done by a makeup artist who hasn't done Asian eyes before, I need to sort of say the approach has to be different because my eyes aren't hooded and I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. So I'll kind of laugh about it. Like be like, ha oh, my Asian yeah. eyes. But that's hard because I'm not making a racist joke, but I, I do need to explain there are physical differences, yeah. but I don't want to make them feel awkward. So it's I don't want to be hard. serious either. Yeah. It's really difficult. So I have learned in a way where it's, I'm like, there's a difference between racism and levity and joking and like I'm just such a jokester and I would say that if I would say to you oh just because I'm Asian as a joke you're welcome to laugh at it because it's a joke it's different when it comes with a different 
type of motive. Yeah. And you can feel the malice behind it. If someone yes. actually said that to me, even as a joke, I'd, to me personally, I'd probably laugh because that's who I am. Yeah. Like they know and they're doing directing it to me in that way that I would have directed it to them. Yeah. So it's really, for me, it's okay. But sometimes when it becomes quite um, confronting or actually mean, mm. that's when it's not that nice. Even- like we're talking about curiosity, being like, what's in your food? There's a difference between saying, hey, what's that that you're eating? Mm. And a big difference between that and saying, ew, what's that? Yeah. Or like, ew, that looks like poo. <laughs> like, I've had that before. When I when I was in high school, I brought pork floss. Oh, like, my God. From bread top. Pork floss is the best. And I had people being like, ew, that looks like cow poo. Like, <gasps> or like, the poo that like, looks like fluffy. Yeah. So, I was like, oh. I kind of know it wasn't racism, but that stuff. But it can't. It, it feels is. a little bit harsher yeah. than if you, someone to say, "Hey, what's that?" Like I've never had that before. I think intention is very important, mm. and there does have to be a safe space for curiosity because otherwise, everyone will be too scared to say anything, which then doesn't help break down and like barriers. You know, yeah. it makes the barriers higher. So it's hard, very mm. hard. Um, that covers the adoption topic. Kish. The next topic is fertility. Ooh, something that you and I have been speaking about a lot more over the last period. So disclaimer here: neither of us are fertility experts, yes. <laughs> and I have like we're very, very early on preliminary steps. So anything we, including me, including Anne, you have been part of the, the triplet that is going to be <laughs> the parents of this child. No, and we're like so preliminary, and there are people who have been a long way through the process who have much more to say um and so i am doing as i mentioned i'll be doing a separate adoption episode i'll also do a separate fertility episode um with a guest who i already have in mind who is much further along in the process and will be able to shed light on the stages of ivf and you know i'm very very early but there are lots of questions so but also this is questions about your experience you don't have to be yeah, an expert yeah. in but i also think um, it's important to cover like more of those early stage preparation things cuz you just get the biggest surprise for me and response like the response to that surprise has been very like echoing this oh my god what am i even saying people are echoing that surprise is that you can get to your 30s or whatever age you start thinking about it and not know anything there are four stages to our cycle. Oh. What? Like that is brand new information. Wow. Did you know that? Of course, Vim. Okay, but we you, had to, you but we had studied to learn like, biology. Yeah, okay. So. But people who don't work in the medical yeah, yeah. arena genuinely have never heard. Like someone replied to my story being like, what do you mean we have four stages? I'm like, yeah. see? No, it's fair. And also I know there are four stages, but I couldn't tell you anymore what any of them mean okay anymore. let's do that quickly because i think that's important so there are four stages the um luteal, luteal phase the yeah. follicular phase follicular let me let's find it four phases is ovulation a phase um good question tbc yes ovulation luteal the actual menstruation and follicular yeah. and that is like I don't think I'd heard the word follicular until like I did the Tom Organic podcast and talked to a specialist about my cycle. And I was like, do you understand I am learning this for the first time? Like now. Crazy. And do you people forget about the understanding how estrogen and progesterone work? Yeah. Like 
don't even know. Yeah. Crazy. So menstruation is when the lining of your uterus sheds. Then your first phase after that is follicular. Oh, hold on. Follicular phase starts on the first day of menstruation, sorry, and ends with ovulation. So that is when um, the hormone, the follicle-stimulating hormone, stimulates the ovary to produce around 5 to 20 follicles, which bead on the surface. Then ovulation is the phase when your mature eggs are being released. So ovulation is the time when you are supposed to be trying to get pregnant and you need to identify when you're ovulating and the window that you're ovulating in, which there are lots of – we'll talk about this in the questions um, and there's a lot more articulate explanations of this, but ovulation is the phase – I used to think you could get pregnant anytime, but no, you have to be ovulating. So that's a whole thing. And then the luteal phase is after that. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of, you know, scientific things about the corpus luteum and all that kind of stuff. Please go and research it because it's crazy. Like there's just so much information about it. I might share the link to the Tom Organic episode because it was so fascinating. There's stages of your cycle. You have different energy. Like why do you go and schedule the most energy intensive things at the wrong time in your cycle? Like how have we not been learning how to harness our energy the, the most efficiently? Anyway, so first thing you need to know is is the stages of your cycle. All right. Good wrap up. <laughs> that was the least articulate thing I've ever said, but you go and Google it because yeah. it <laughs> blows your mind. Okay. So first question, biggest question, bubbers. What's the plan? And also, I love that you left this comment in. <laughs> Loving your carefree lifestyle. <laughs> I think I left that in to talk about the fact that we have been pretty carefree. We got married three years ago. And three? Yeah. yeah wow. Nearly three. I can't believe it. And we weren't in a rush. Like, you guys have obviously, anyone who's followed for a while know we're pretty busy. Like, we have lots of things to do and we've got lots of businesses and we've recently sold the businesses, which we'll also get to. So there's been a lot on. Um, also, my father-in-law has been unwell. So there's been a lot of travel, a lot of uncertainty. And then COVID, like it just pretty much as soon as we got married, it hit. So mm. when we, we were otherwise probably going to start immediately, but then you know, the rules about being in hospital and delivery and all those things just were so up in the air that we thought we're just not in a rush. Let's survive COVID and and see what happens. And then now that things have been going back to normal a little bit, it's only really been this year and I would say the last few months that we started to think suddenly I went into COVID at as a 30-year-old and I've come out like 33 and I'm like, oh my God, it felt like a minute. But, you know, mentally I'm no older, but the body clock ticking is a reality for women. It's quite confronting and really overwhelming. So this was the year that I thought I need to at least look at how to prepare. You could just start going for it, Hammer and Tong, but we also don't have any medical information. Who's Hammer and Tong? Um, the other two people in our relationship. Oh, We're in a quadruple. I, I didn't so. tell you. You're not one of them, just saying. <laughs> But I thought, you know, you could just start going at it, but um, because we have no medical information on my side or Nick's mum's side, there are actually things you can do. So I went to the GP. Um, so, sorry, answer to that question is the plan is we're not not trying. We are not actively. We haven't started. Someone actually asked a question the other day, are you TTC? And I was like, what the fuck does that mean? Trying to conceive. It's like a thing. Okay. Surely that's not a it's common. A it's a thing. Off topic quickly. There was a quiz in the age, um, the question in the quiz in the age the other day. The question something was was on, along the lines of in social media and texting, what does T I L stand for? Oh, no idea. 
Pim. No idea is N I. No, what is T <laughs> spelt? How is pizza spelt sourdough? <laughs> anyway. What is T I L? No idea. Today I learned. Oh my god. That is not a thing. I've never seen that. Have you seen um, that? I C M I. I see why yeah, am I? No, like I only learned that the other day. No, I feel like I see that a lot, but I have not seen TIL. Have you ever. seen IMHO? In my humble opinion. Yeah, good one. Yeah. <laughs> and NGL, Nick started using that all the not time. Not gonna lie. Yeah. There's, it's like a whole new world. Anyway, yeah. TTC anyway, is trying sorry. to conceive. <laughs> we are not TTC. Like I would not say that we're in that phase. So the okay. So we've got I've gone to the GP and like said what are the things I need to do. The GP has said, which I think a lot of people will have heard, you just need to start trying. There are no things you can do. Like BTTC. And then if six months later nothing happens, then you go and do all the tests. My overachievy self was like, no, no, no. I'm not just going to like try willy-nilly for six months. I want the information. We want information gathering. So we're not TTC. Oh, my God. (laughs) Christ. You are excluded as godmother. He <laughs> said willy. Well, a boy and he has context, a willy. Yeah. In the context of TTCing. Sorry. Sorry. Anyway, so I ended up convincing her. She knows me well. She understands my brain. I ended up convincing her that we want to do some information gathering first. So first thing was come off the pill. It's been quite a few months we are all so different in how long it takes to get a regular cycle back, but that is a very important part of preparing your body. I'm probably at the stage where I have a cycle, which is amazing and exciting. Um, the biggest change, I, I think a lot of people have quite a hard time. I haven't had much trouble with the change. It did take a bit to get a cycle, but my skin has been a little bit upset by it. I don't normally get big hormonal pimples. Ketupahood wouldn't have been a word last year. It is now. Um, so that was one big thing. Um, and I think it's really different for everyone, but for me, it hasn't been that hard. The first thing that she recommended that we do is an AMH blood test. Now that is just like, you know, is a regular blood test, but it measures. So it's called an anti-malarian hormone test. As a woman, as most of you know, we run out of eggs as we get older. So the egg count goes lower and that obviously impacts your fertility. The number of those small follicles decline in number and as a result, the serum anti-malarian hormone falls. So you're testing for the level of hormone, which will tell you how many eggs you have in your what's called ovarian reserve. That's the term used to describe the number of good quality eggs left in your ovaries. And it's important to know if you have a diminished reserve because then you will know that you have diminished fertility and be able to kind of manage those risks. So in terms of like getting a full picture, that is a really useful place to start that's not very invasive. And malaria, not malaria. Yeah, M-U-L-L-E-R-I-A-N. Yeah, I heard malarian. As, in, as in malaria, the disease. <laughs> Imagine if like, all these people want to get anti-malaria injections. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah told me to. <laughs> so um, the recommendation is that women under the age of 38 who are considering delaying pregnancy, women with a family history of ovarian failure, autoimmune disease, chemotherapy or previous surgery are kind of the recommended people. Um, I just thought I was getting to the stage in my almost mid-30s that I should do it. Medicare doesn't cover this test, so the cost I think is like about $100. Um, And, yeah, the levels fluctuate very little during a cycle, so you can do it anytime. Anyway, go and see your GP um, and they can 
they can get that test organized for you. Um, something else other people have mentioned to me, which I haven't done, is a thing called Eugene testing, like the name Eugene. And I think this is um, a genetic test that does it tests your genes to support pregnancy, heart, and cancer health. I don't know anything about this because I haven't done that one, um, and I don't want to say anything about it because I'm not qualified, but. Um, yeah, that's been a very common recommendation to get your genetic background on fertility. Eugene, E-U-G-E-N-E. When you get your AMH blood test results back, you'll then go through the results and you'll either say you've got a high level or a low level or a moderate level. And then based on that, you'll know if you've got good fertility, low fertility, middle, and then you can work out a plan. Um, I had a lot of eggs, which is great, but it could also mean um, that you have polycystic ovaries, which a lot of people we've spoken about PCOS a lot. It's very underrecognized. It uh, it results in irregular periods, irregular ov- ovulation. It can manifest very differently for a lot of people. Um, and then you know, for some people it doesn't do, it doesn't affect their fertility at all. For some people it does. So I have a high level of eggs, which could have meant polycystic ovaries. So I went to get um, a pelvic ultrasound, which is a bit more invasive. It is internal. I had no idea what to say to the doctor while she was like playing with my junk, did a TikTok about it. It was really fun. Um, Don't have the results back yet, but that was the next thing that I've done. I haven't done anything else. So like I said, the most preliminary, but those are a couple of starting points if you want to start researching. And if you also want to figure out, start tracking your cycle so you can work out when you're ovulating, there are some awesome apps. Um, There are some amazing podcasts that you can listen to as well. Uh, Our good friend Loz is pretty much an expert, so you could text Loz. I've got Loz for everything, for literally anything. Um, There are also ovulation sticks you can pee on. Um, Yeah, but beyond that, I can't really speak much further than that. We're just very early stages. Yeah. Um, I, when you guys were in Europe, not Europe, Egypt, I remember messaging you every second day being like, so you're pregnant? So you're oh pregnant? Oh, my God. Pregnant you're making babies? Pregnant make babies? Make some more. Remind make, some more. make babies. <laughs> <laughs> only for my benefit. And I was like, Ben, we're not TTC yet. <laughs> we're not TTC. I know. And I only did that because I knew you were like doing the going tests. through the whole process. Yeah. I wouldn't have said that and pushed that upon you if you weren't at that stage. Important note to make. <laughs> um, I'm not a B-I-T-C-H. But we're like, I mean, I'll document the process. I wasn't going to say anything because the pressure it then adds on you. Exactly. Everyone being like, when, when, when. But then I also was like, there's no harm in like information gathering. And I think maybe everyone might be curious in doing that. So, um, This one is more an advice question. How to be happy for friends' pregnancy announcements when you're in the depth of infertility struggles. That is is an extremely common situation and often people are suffering in silence because if you are on that kind of journey, you often don't want to share what's going on because it's it's devastating, it's vulnerable, and I can't imagine how difficult that would be because they are sort of celebrating everything that you are trying to have and I don't think many things can make that sort of pain go away. Um And it's the same as any kind of comparison, really. It's so difficult sometimes when someone's getting something that is exactly what you're trying so hard to get. But I think my only advice is to not deprive yourself of the feelings. You're allowed to feel bad. You're allowed to feel resentful. You obviously don't have to express that to them, but you're allowed to have those feelings. So sit in them. That's part of the process of getting through them. Um, And speak to your partner and speak to people who are going to understand 
but do the things that allow you to then celebrate with them when you do see them. You know, maybe don't go to them first, maybe monitor the way that you you access those kind of announcements and um if you need to see a psychologist, maybe see a therapist. That might also be really helpful for you to have an outlet. But I think allow yourself the feelings, know that that's very normal, um, but also that everyone's on their own journey. And, you know, if you deeply love someone, you are also going to be happy with them, but it, it doesn't mean you have to be happy with them without also feeling sad for yourself. You can have lots of emotions at once. It's just learning when and how to express happiness for them and if you're not in the right place then that's not the day you go visit them you know it's a good one Pim. i can't speak from experience yet but that's my advice at this point in time. yeah <laughs> and then how do you work on comparison this person is 33 not married or have children so feel a bit of self-doubt same thing i think like anything you know i talk a lot of, in the cza book about blinkers sometimes comparison is really triggering and you can't get through it and you just need to put on metaphorical blinkers or physical blinkers to stop the things that are triggering you. Like racehorses have blinkers because they run their own race. They don't, they'll get so distracted if they see what everyone else is doing in the field, but they just put the blinkers on. And, you know, for example, in our wedding, I couldn't look at other wedding dresses because I was just going to get lumped in a whole spiral of comparison that would then take away the joy from what I'm doing. So I think you need to be really disciplined about knowing what triggers those feelings and how to kind of push them away really quickly. So you're not indulging that self-doubt. Learn to speak about it with people who will not reinforce the doubt but help you back kind of in your own lane to celebrate the things that you do have. And overall, my biggest reminder is like no one else in your life has to deal with the consequences of your choices about how you live it. Like you're the only one that's lumped with the consequences. You have to live with your choices. I mean, obviously it impacts other people, but you have to be happy with the life that you want. So making decisions just because someone else is doing them to the detriment of what's right for you, it's never going to make you happy. There's absolutely no point in comparing yourself and changing everything about your decisions to match someone else because that's not your life. So the more you can be really in tune with and honour what makes you feel good, what makes you happy, what aligns with your values, it's just so important that really what anyone else, what anyone else is doing and thinking is actually kind of irrelevant. Yep. There was this really good quote, and I always forget it, but I love it. It's got to do with you're never too far in front and you're never too far behind. You're exactly where you need to be. Yeah, that was our quote of the yay. Oh, this week? Um, a couple of weeks ago. Oh, Rem- my God. Remember we were like you can never fall be- behind in your own life? Oh, well, yeah. Because, I, like, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my Something one. like that. Because always so true. People, we always compare ourselves to where we're meant to be because because society is that way. Yeah, or because someone else is Because there. someone else is. But people aren't judging where you are. You just feel that pressure yourself, which is hard to obviously work through. But I don't know. And also my, some people might not want kids. Yeah, my like, mum. Or had, not want to get married. My mum had Nick when she was 42. Wow. And still, like, loved life. Like, it's... You and know? if you if you don't want children either, I think like the worst thing that you could go and do is then have one just because you mm-hmm. think everyone else like that's the natural timeline. There is no natural mm-hmm. timeline. You like, can't refund them. You can't. <laughs> just gotta keep on going. Right. <laughs> Such a weird comment. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, it's a, but yeah, it's a, I mean, yeah, you need to. Yeah, I think it's it's so hard to make decisions that are different to other people's, mm. but you know. We're all different. There's a reason. This is the point of this podcast, the whole idea that like one person's joy is another person's hell and that's why the world works because we're all so different. So stick to the things that, you know, are joyful for you. 
Um, and that was the last question of the fertility section. If you have any further questions, um, and particularly further along the line with IVF and that kind of thing, um, we will be doing another episode on that. So please send them through. Um, next topic is matcha. So did I just blow up the microphone? No. Okay, great. Um, first question, why did you sell matcha maiden? Great question. So we had been seven years Seven years I know, of doing that. That's more than double the time I was a lawyer. That is crazy. I didn't realize how long I was involved in it. I thought the you guys had been established for so much longer than I started. Nah. So basically, it was, you know, when we started, as you all know, it was a very happy accident. We didn't think it was going to have legs in it, let alone like full time me changing my entire career path legs. And the first couple of years were so crazy. They were just so chasing our tail, no real time to kind of reevaluate and think about it and just madness, but it's so exciting. Then we entered that like hard bit where you have to suddenly deal with instead of being the only matcher on the market, it was a saturated market. And all these new challenges started to come in where we had to really make conscious proactive decisions rather than reactive. That's probably the time when we realized we had to stop winging it. That was no longer going to be enough. Very hard, huge learning curve. Went through the Chobani incubator at that stage, totally revolutionized our business based on their expertise in mass market. Um, But it actually showed us that where we logically would go with Matcha is not where we're best placed as individuals. And this comes back to the comparison thing. The logical assumption in business is that bigger is better. So we were like, oh, obviously, the more stockers we keep having, the more volume, the higher revenue, like that's where we should go. But as it got bigger, we started to realize day to day, it was no longer like I had become corporate again, which is what I left. And Nick is creative and he was only doing non-creative logistical things, which is not a bad thing. But if the whole point was to follow what we're best at, we're really good at startup mode. We're not very good at like exponential growth phase from the five to 10 year mark. That's a whole different ball game. So we started looking for investors because we were like, there are people who aren't good at the startup phase, but it's their jam to take businesses from five to 10. And then they sell it to someone who goes 10 onwards. And in the hunt for an investor to partner with, to we've always thought of ourselves as like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, I always talk about, yay, being a jigsaw puzzle. So it's a skills base. We realized there was a big missing piece for like the scale-up piece and looked for someone to fill it. We found these incredible investors who came on board and had everything that we didn't have and we had everything that they wanted and it was this beautiful partnership for about six months and then they realized actually the brand is stronger than we thought it would be without you being front-facing all the time. And in the meantime, I had freed up all this time to build Seize the A into a, a business level thing and speaking and ambassadorships and realized that brought me back closer to people interactions rather than like through a product. It was direct, direct conversations, direct impact, direct, you know, like my the nature of my work was with face to face with people. Um, and they offered to buy the remaining shares. And that was sort of like another big step in the staircase that I never knew was coming, but I was like, it's time. This beautiful thing has outgrown us. We've outgrown it. These new guardians are doing a much better job at the next phase, which we just weren't interested in. And 
everything else, it started to also hold us. Ba- oh, my God, you're going to laugh so much. It became mutually exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> I could no longer do both without sacrificing on one or the other. And that was where that's where the law firm um, departure happened was when I couldn't do both very well and I don't like doing things half ass. Mm-hmm. So then when the offer came up, it made sense. I don't know. I think there's a good other thing is that you knew it was time. Like yeah. I think that's an important part of it was time. It was fuck a turn back time. Everyone got to just gotta watch go watch Will and Grace. It's a reference. Um, you need to include this in your reference. Angie's in charge mm-hmm. of doing the um, pictorial references <laughs> for our jokes. Uh, okay, so next question is quite personal question. Uh, I'm not answering this one, yeah, but I left it in. Because- it in? How much did you sell that you made I left for? it in because I didn't want anyone to think I ignored the question. I will questions. give you $1. <laughs> <laughs> that is too personal. Yeah. But also contractually private. Exactly, yeah. But um, thank you for asking. I can tell <laughs> you, though. If you slide into my DMs, I'll tell you. It was $4.50. It was $4.50 <laughs> from the, all those carrot dollars that I accumulated. <laughs> um, Plus inflation. $4.82. <laughs> what are you working on now that Machamada – whoa. What are you working <laughs> on now that the Machamaden and Machamilk Bar ventures have wrapped up? Yeah, interestingly, so I answered this on um, Instagram in a very long essay, so you can go and look at that one. But very short answer is um, we didn't have the situation like a lot of people who sell their business have where they haven't got anything to jump to and they have this gaping hole in their life day to day and it's really overwhelming. We both, Nick had kept his creative agency bushy the whole time and had in the meantime started working on what most of you will have seen, this incredible botanical beauty startup called Bloom Effects um, and his role there had become exponentially bigger already. So that was holding him back in that. And CCA had well before become a full-time gig along Mm. with sort of all my other um, TV and radio and all those kinds of things. So we really didn't have a jump. Uh, We already were running different businesses that are our own. The big shift for me was going from a product to a service and from having the buffer of a product to speak for itself, to it being me. So the self-doubt and imposter syndrome is a much bigger thing when you're the product. Um, but the simplicity of it has also been beautiful. So where I'm working on CCA and Spoonful, which is kind of just me, and Nick is working on Bushy Creative and Bloom Effects. Mm. And I, f- I feel like you guys lifting, listing those both as just two entities makes it seem like you don't do very much. But C's for you entails all of your own podcast, producing podcasts for other companies and brands on top of that being Channel 7, House of Wellness presenting and radio and then obviously CZA itself on social media and then on top of that travel, you know, you've done awesome things with Intrepid. So all of that falls under C's, not just your book and your podcast and your flip book. And then same with Nick. Bushy is an agency for multiple, multiple startups and people forget that Nick is kind of the only man behind that so you're both kind of running both of your things individually and solo which is actually a really big job to have mm. um cute thanks Pim. you're welcome you can pay me later it's four dollars thanks <laughs> so i made zero from the sale <laughs> um and cool so segues perfectly into this next section which is massive i know i'm like oh my god i wrote 55 minutes but uh, korea we'll try 
and go as quick as we can. Korea, as in not Korea. As in South Korea. Korea. Cute. Korea. Annyeong. Um, we're going to go, not quick fire, but, you know. Yeah, sorry. Okay, I'll keep them short. <laughs> no, you don't have to. If there's <laughs> things that you want to say. Um, Sarah, <laughs> you are the queen of academics. I'm a fellow oh. uni student wondering if you had any tips on how to do well, bracket studying early, early etc. Great question. Quick recommendation. Sarah Rav on Instagram and TikTok is um, an amazing, amazing influencer who's had a big account for a really long time. She has pivoted recently, I think, into study tips and interviews a lot of people who got 99.95 in their ATAR and for like practical hacks in terms of actual study styles, her account's awesome. Go and have a look. Um, And there are lots of other educational like tips and tricks. My biggest tip would be obviously find out the study styles that work for you. Some people cram, some people need longer to absorb information. It's all experimenting with what works best for you. Again, don't compare to what other people are doing. We all study and learn differently. Um, The biggest tip that really helped me, two of them are, one, pick subjects or make choices based on what you're really good at and enjoy, not just forcing because you think you should, because often you'll do better in the subject that you're interested in, which looks better, even if it's not directly related to the career you want to go into. People know that there are transferable skills and intelligence. They know that you're not always going to only do the subjects that, like, obviously there are prereqs. If you do have a choice in your electives, I chose random subjects that had nothing to do with commercial law, but I had a better chance of getting into law because I did better in them because I was interested in them. So that's one. And same in uni. Number two, studying, I think, and you probably agree with this, Bim, you do better, like anything, if it's not the only thing you do. Oh, so, oh my God, Bim, if you didn't say that, I was going to just add that in. Right? Are we, and we are walking examples of that. 1, we did 000%. one million extracurricular activities that took away from our study time. Like our whole time at McRobb was sport, drama, music, everything, chorals, like debating, like everything. And that took so much time that on the face of it looks very anti-academic, but the break for your brain, the diversity of activities during your week mean you're always fresh when you come back to studying. It makes you balanced. It makes you interesting. And the times where I would pull back on those and just study, 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 I wouldn't do any better. In fact, I'd be more tired and burnt out. I agree. And I think I I tried almost to make a statement out of it in year 12, not forcefully doing more than necessary but I had done it in the background being like, well, let's just this, do this little case study between me and one of my really close best mates. And we have the same similar studying studying styles. We did the same subjects. I kept all of my co-curricular and mm. more and worked and everything. She quit all of hers. And prior to that, I was doing quite a lot. <sighs> and then in terms of our scores, it was markedly different mm. because of – and I attributed it very much to that and and me not being stressed out by exams and her maybe being a bit more stressed. But also I had the best year 12 of my whole life and I think everyone was surprised mm. at the end of the year with what I ended up with because I just was hardly in school. Same. We were the same. All of our teachers for both of us were just like, what? Yeah, we're like, <laughs> what do you is mean? this fake, fake news? Um, but we enjoyed it. Year 12 was one of the best years of my life as well. Like I had a great time yeah. and I studied really hard yeah. but I also – don't remember that year as being only that. I have yeah. like other memories. And practical tips. Are you a big advocate for lots of practice exams? 
Yes. Okay, me too. Heaps. Love them. Heaps of practice exams. Yeah. Like just to practice. Okay, firstly, handwriting. Like you need to get your hand used to writing that quickly. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, these days we don't handwrite at all. And like you don't want your downfall to be because your hand got a cramp. Like, yeah. But also so many questions come up again in like a slightly different form. Getting your brain used to the time that like just – just do them. Yeah. There's so many of them. They're so helpful. I did millions. Yeah. I, I think it was a McGraw thing, though. It was almost like a battle of who could do more practice exams. Totally. We'd and be I like, totally I'm up to won. 52 methods exams, Same. practices, whatever. And I got a 50 raw, whatever. Oh. Flex. <laughs> Sarah is normally really modest with those scores. This is the first time I've ever seen you flex. <laughs> do you know why, though? I only did flex you do, that. Did you do further? No, I did methods. Oh, do you know what? Oh, no hate to further. I, maths is maths. Maths is hard work but like i only flex it because i failed in year 11 no I'm can a, you imagine I'm the jump bim from bim. failing to year 11 because i just like was totally non-attentive i think you and i love to prove people wrong yeah, in underdog. a malicious way though in an underdog way underdog. Yeah, yeah. i was like the math underdog math yeah, and yeah. science like everyone at mcgrub was like you are a waste of space because you're so naughty and you're wagging and like being with Melbourne High Boys. Naughty Gill. Anyway, balance. Uh, um, balance. I have an aversion to being average in society. I'm wondering <sighs> if this is something you battle with. This is a great one for us. Yes. yes. What did they do? We're like, speaking of flexing our scores. <laughs> we're amazing and yes. we can't do anything less. And we're balanced though. We're balanced. We chill. No, no that. absolutely. That is a really, really difficult thing for like highly driven A-type people to just coast sometimes and not need to be the best at everything. And you guys know that play TA, I actually have to force myself to do activities I know I'm bad at so that I don't, so that I can relax and I don't try and win and make a business out of every single thing that I do. (laughs) And it's really difficult. Like your identity gets so wrapped up in trying to be the best at everything and it's tiring and it's not joyful. You need to be able to do some activities just for the pleasure and you, Bim, have been very good at that for me because you force me to do activities you know. It's because I'm below average. I wouldn't know. It's because you force good. me to choose things that you know I don't like and I'm not good at, but you make me more comfortable with not being good at it and yeah. still enjoying it. I think it's because we're so used to being high achieving. That's why. We don't do it for the praise. It's just hard when you. It's an identity thing. It's like yeah, you it's, can't do anything halfway. It's a go-getter mentality. And if I know, if I try it once and I know I'm like, so far away from being good I'm like no I won't do it but you make me still do it like bouldering and like go-karting and well you like boxing I could be good at boxing if I tried harder but like I will never be good at tennis like I have good ball eye coordination but for some reason I question there's a question that says <laughs> speaking of average what about your contract score at uni shut nick oh my god i want a divorce <laughs> right now and i take back everything i said about fertility <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> so this is an ongoing joke at law school i got i don't know 
I just had released my inner nerd in year 12 and then it was out and I was never putting it back in the box. I did very well academically and um, got all distinctions and high distinctions except for one subject, which was my best subject. And because I overthought everything, I did too many readings and I got way too distracted and I got like 10% through the paper and didn't finish it. And so I got a credit and now- Guys, guys, listen. The fact that she's so sad and traumatized about a credit- Answers the other question. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's because there's only one. Like I get so upset when I see my transcript. It's like AC. Literally. And now because contracts is the main subject that you use in business- Every time Nick will go, can you just read this contract? Oh, no, don't worry about it. <laughs> Nick, every time. Humble. Literally. How do, you, how do you go towards getting better, not being average? Have Nick. He, he'll literally be like, okay, so I've got this bloom. It's really important, this contract. Actually, no, it's really important, so you shouldn't read it. I'll get someone else to read this contract. Like, asshole. <laughs> no, he's amazing, and he I do is. read his contracts all the time, and I use that he more than any other skill. Um, best advice for someone in their early 20s? This one I put in Korea, I think it was really meant more broadly. Um, that's a really hard one. But honestly, the biggest tip is my favorite quote or one of my favorite quotes. You don't have to see the whole staircase to take the first step. The whole of my 20s was very consumed by well, what's the next step. I need to have it all figured out. When I was at the law firm, everything was about the final destination. It was like partnership or the next promotion. Like it was very ladder climby and box ticky. And I think if you become too fixated on not just career-wise but life-wise, like who you should be at the end destination or what you should have or what you should earn or whatever question it is or, you know, who your friend should be or who your partner should be, then you don't, A, enjoy the ride or, B, leave the possibility that actually your plan could be terrible and the universe could have something way better for you planned. So my advice in your 20s is, like, explore all sides of yourself, while you're like young and silly, <laughs> enjoy that. Go and exchange, travel, try new activities. And be different. Be different. Don't you not have to be different. It's like the freest decade of your life. Enjoy that. Like try new things, take risks, talk to new people, always try like to meet new people and learn from them. Everyone you meet will know something you don't and they can introduce you to a world you never knew existed. Don't be too hard on like making a lifelong decision because there is no such thing anymore. The world moves too quickly. So actually it takes the pressure off. You don't need to make a forever decision. Yep. Enjoy and your 20s. It's amazing. And it's chill because your circle might reduce in size and that's chill and that's normal. Yeah, and we have a circle of two. <laughs> it's, a, it's a line, remember? It's a linear. this before. <laughs> so guys introducing this concept of linear friendship. It's like... Two people in a gang. That's a very line. Cute. It's a collab. It's a collab, (laughs) guys. Okay, vote on. (laughs) We have heard people say, and we're not very big on making fun of people, but some people call it a collabo. It's not okay. It's not not okay. 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 Delirium. Um, Activate. Most of your Mm. friends seem very motivated with side hustles and big careers. Most of my friend in the linear friendship. friendship. (laughs) Um, Do you purposely seek out people like this in order to have like-minded friends and what do you look for in friends? Absolutely. I definitely have made a big uh, conscious effort, particularly in the earlier years of leaving law. Whenever you move goals or values or direction – 
it's a really important thing to also help shape your friendship group so that it supports where you're going rather than where you came from or where you once were. And that doesn't mean like let go of all your friends, but it does mean it's easier to achieve something when the people around you believe you can or have done similar things or understand where you're coming from. And I didn't necessarily have that in my legal friends because they thought the same way that I'd been trained to. So there are shifts in your friendship every time there's a shift in your mentality. Having said that, I think it's also very important to have friends who are really different to you as well. So I love that I still have friends who are in corporate. I love that I have friends who are so the opposite of me in every way because they keep your mind open and they teach you other things and they every friendship I have adds something really different to my life. So you want like-minded friends, but you don't want only like-minded friends. And you can also accept, and I think as you get older, I've learned that there are some friendships where you want the whole person in one person, but there are maybe parts of that friendship that compromise you a little bit or that you're not aligned on. And that doesn't mean always that you have to like, you know, we always say walk away from toxic things. You don't always have to love every part of a person to have a great friendship. You can accept the really good parts and learn to manage the other parts. Um, so I think have a really broad range of friendships is my best advice. Definitely have friends that are, you know, to like that are going to help you achieve the goal you're in right now, but in but keep other friendships as well because you don't want to become too siloed. Yeah, I think is what I mean. I feel like I slightly beg to differ in your purpose seeking of like minded people because I don't feel like you do it actively on purpose. You don't go out and be like, oh, you are an entrepreneur, therefore oh, we me. need to be friends. Yeah, oh. I feel like you naturally gravitate towards the people that better you, and then oh, that's as nice a result. Thing that becomes your friendship group rather than yeah. you going to seek out people yeah, that are yeah. like-minded, which is very different to just being that's true. your people at that time. <clears throat> yeah, that's really nice naturally, Well, I think that's how it happens that, for you. Yeah. I don't Because the question is, do you purposely seek out these people? And I don't oh, think you no. do. Yeah, I know what you mean. I don't yeah. think you go out and be like, mm, I'm going to network and find motivated people and, therefore, and then become friends with them or befriend oh, them, that's which nice is very you. different. I do think, though, that some people are sort of like, how do those friendships come into your lap? Mm. And in that case, I think, no, you actually have to go to events or like put yourself in a situation where you might encounter new friendships kind of thing. Like some people don't network much outside their friendship group, but then don't get access to new people. And it's, I did so much networking, like incidental networking of turning up at things by myself, which was kind of awkward, but then it forced me to talk to new people. Yeah. It's fun. Um, And on the back of that, talking about friendships, uh, what are your tips on navigating friendships in your 30s? They say we only have space for five close friends, including family. Oh, so that's comes from that quote. You're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with, which I My love. Um, and I think a big part of your 30s and probably 40s and 50s, and I mean, maybe at any stage in your life, is that you start with like max volume mm. and then you go now quality. And it does involve sometimes a real whittling down of your circle because life gets busier and the time you have allocated for for friends is smaller and your you know ability to be a, a 100% friend for people gets smaller as well so i think we sometimes lament the changing of and maybe dwindling of friendship <laughs> groups but i i don't think it's a bad thing i think if you have some really really good, yeah good people in your life you don't need a million friends it's great to have a million people in your life. Like I definitely have a wide circle of people I get to spend time with, which is amazing. But your people, people, you don't need to have that many of them. And you need to 
have enough room left over in your emotional bank to be the person, the friend, the lover, the sister, the daughter, whatever you want to be. And sometimes that does mean like choosing kind of in a discerning way. And what are your quick tips on navigating the friendships in your 30s? Um, Communication for anything, including romantic relationships. I think the that's my only tip really all the other tips relate to communication the more you get to know each other and the more you learn the ways to to express enough appreciation but also to be able to pull each other up when there's like a bit of discord before it gets you know if you can express how you feel in a safe way and they can do the same everything else falls into place not a cold must be a safe way what <laughs> let it let it marinate like <laughs> i don't a safe way Oh, safe way, Bim. It's Wooly. Bim. It was really good. Get with the I was really hoping that would land. And if you quicker. can pull them up on their bad jokes, like in a constructive, <laughs> loving way, it's like really important. Um, <laughs> I love you. I see you. I hear you. But no. <laughs> uh, also, play is our communication. Yes. Very good. Ref episode. I don't know what the number is, but there's a play episode. I think it's got play in the title, mm. so go back and listen to that. Um, okay, next one is tips for improving confidence or self-worth. And second part to that question is growing communication. Yes. Um, that is the hardest area. First tip is always self-doubt is not ever going to go away in a good way. You don't want it to disappear. You don't want to ever not have that little like, you know, not that you want to feel self-doubtful, I'm probably saying this wrong, but I think if I ever didn't have a bit of self-doubt, I'd worry I wasn't invested in doing a good job. It is a sign that you're doing something new and exciting and challenging. It's a good sign. But there's a limit and also there has to be a way for you to accept it as a sign and then not let it dictate your decision decisions or change how you feel about yourself. Practice, definitely. Practicing better self-dialogue. Breaking that circuit one of the things that makes humans unique is that unlike most mammals that just think, we can think about our thoughts. We have metacognition. That means you can think about your thoughts. So we can stop a bad thought and just change it at any time, which is why we're so special. So you can acknowledge the self-doubt and then learn to just push it away. And if you can't do that yourself and break the circuit yourself at the beginning, phone a friend who's going to help you. And the more it's like a neural pathway, the more you get used to stopping that in its tracks and realizing you wouldn't have this opportunity if you couldn't cope with it. You wouldn't be given this, you wouldn't be put in this situation if you couldn't deal with it. You were chosen for a reason. You are wildly more capable than you think you are. If you aren't right now, you can be and you will be. And you need people around you who will help you believe that rather than people who will detract from that. It's my, yeah, best advice. Find yourself a hype girl. Hype girl? Hype person. Hype person. Hype animal also. Sorry, Paul. Oh, Paul. Yeah, this is Hype dog. Um, Hype dog. Uh, advice. Oh, oh god! <laughs> advice, for, <laughs> advice for within law. Um, two parts of this. Just about to finish up. LLB at Monash and tips for no- negotiating higher duties in workplace. Yeah. Okay. So within law, I think it is the most versatile degree ever. You are so well equipped for anything, whether it be in corporate, whether it be in the courts, whether it be in house or you know, there's just so many directions you can go inside the law. You don't need to go outside it to still get like a, a, to have such a diverse range of careers. Best advice is if you don't know what you want to do and you don't, you're not going to figure that out on time, like by the time you finish your degree, you've got to do something. 
The biggest thing in law is getting qualified and you aren't, you don't graduate qualified. So if you can find a way to get qualified and buy yourself some time to figure out what you do want to do, sometimes people think, oh, well, you know, I know I don't want to be in law, so I'll just work at Coles now or I'll just do something else. But if you can get that qualification, it only takes you a year, then no matter what, you can go back to it. The time's going to pass anyway, so you might as well, you know, give yourself the best chance of starting. I didn't think I wanted to be in law forever, but I didn't know what else I would do. So I was like, well, I might as well open more doors rather than close them. And the more work experience you have, the more exposure you have to other jobs in the gray areas that you've never heard about before. So just get your foot in the door and speak to as many people as you can. Speak to ex-lawyers, speak to current lawyers, speak to, you know, get people, friends of friends to introduce you to people for coffees. You need to like put some time into researching where you might want to go and who you want to become. And if you don't know that by the time you graduate, then start in the best place you can and go from there. Um, advice for outside of law. This is a few questions. So how to know whether to stay in commercial law private practice long-term. Um, this person's working as a grad at a top-tier firm and very proud to say that they made it this far. Sometimes they enjoy it, sometimes they don't, and also don't like the culture, which looks at how late people stay back. Mm. Huge congratulations on making it this far. That's an amazing, amazing achievement. Again, you are in the best place possible to go anywhere in life. And if you choose to stay in that corporate context, that is still absolutely amazing. Um, Most important thing, which is maybe not what people think I would start with, you don't have to love your job all the time. Really, there's, there's this beautiful privilege we have in this generation to have yay all the time in our work, but you don't necessarily have to have that all the time as long as you're finding joy somewhere in your life. So if you are really stimulated and have an amazing opportunity and stability and financial rewards and, you know, it, it helps you build the life that you want and you enjoy it enough, you can stay there. You don't, everyone has bad days at their job, everyone. And that alone is not a reason to think that law isn't suited for you. There are still things institutionally that need to change about FaceTime and long hours and, um, you know, balance. Like definitely there's a long way to go, but that might not be a sign that you don't like law. That might just be that at the moment working in a law firm involves that thing. So very first thing is don't throw away a really great career just because it's not you're not passionate all the time. But having said that, you won't know what else you like unless you explore. So, and you're not going to find that if you just sit there in the same job wondering. So, talk to people, go and have conversations, think about think you can do secondments, like put your hand up to do a secondment within your job where you could go in-house at a company and see what it looks like to work in a business. You can, you know, do a startup on the side. You could volunteer at a startup on the side. You could do like, you know, there's so many ways that you can expand what you are exposed to to see if you might like to do something else. But I think hours alone probably isn't, that's not law specific and it's not a reflection on whether or not you like law. It might just be the culture where you are. You could consider, could consider a different law firm if it's really changing your lifestyle. There are lots and lots of options. Um, but the biggest thing I would say is I didn't leave until I had something to jump to. And the reality of life is you want to have play to yay and you want to have joy, but you also have to pay bills and a lot of people have dependence and responsibilities. So I think if you it if you can use the time that you have there to still have a wage, still support yourself and look for other things, maybe don't jump until you have something to jump to. Um, but that, depends on your financial situation. The next two questions probably could are uh, answered in your book and or slightly answered 
in this podcast. Advice to someone someone wanting to leave law to enter wellness space and where do I start? Which you kind of just touched on. Oh, yeah, same thing. Yeah, same great. thing, I think. Explore as much as you can. Um, it is very rare that people are able to leave their job and have enough finances and stability to leave to nothing and then build the business. I would just say for risk management and also for yourself to like, you know, cut your teeth and get used to it is once you have your idea, do both as long as you can. You might as well. Like you won't have a full-time load of work straight away in a startup. So give yourself as much chance to do both until it becomes mutually exclusive, that phrase that we love. Um, And if you don't have your idea yet, also like it might not be the first idea that works. So you might do a few things on the side and side hustles before you have a full-time business. Life rewards you on like your 5th, 6th, 12th, 11th, backwards, chance. So, you you know, give quite a few things a go and see how they go and then build up to like a full-time loading and then you can make the decision. But, again, the best thing is talk to as many people who have done the same thing as you um, and that helps really enlighten the pathway and get confidence because you know that other people have done it and, um you know, ask if you could sit down for a coffee or read people's books. Like the more you can expose yourself to that career path, the less foreign and scary it feels, but also the more your creative juices will get flowing and you might hit that idea. Um, okay. So I have a decent following, but not sure how to get invited to cool events or receive PR packages. Do you have any tips? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, I think it's interesting the way PR works is often once you get on a mailing list or a, on someone's radar, you stay on it and then like they will represent a lot of different clients and a lot of different events. Um, so sometimes it's just getting to the first one and you can I, – I don't know how it goes down when you like reach out directly, um, but I mean you always could. I think the worst answer you can get is a no and if you ask really politely and in a way that's very curious about a particular client or you do your research, like – that could, you know, definitely go well if you just do some research on the right person who runs a certain account within a PR firm. There's a lot of information on LinkedIn and I would have done the same at the law firm if I was after a particular person or opportunity. Also, you could try and like if a friend gets invited, the way I started to meet a lot of the PR firms was going as a plus one to people to events and then but not just turning up and leaving, turning up, going to meet the person who was the representative from the PR firm, making a relationship with them, making sure to tag the business afterwards and provide some really good value from the event so that you're, you're showing why you should be invited next time. I think it's it's definitely a matter of getting on the radar in a gentle, strategic way and, and an authentic, like, I was genuine say, way. Be genuine yeah, person. yeah. And I also just realised I forgot to answer the question, sorry, this is going to be all out of order, um, about negotiating different responsibilities in a workplace. One statistic I always share which fascinates me so much is that I think it was a Hewlett-Packard study, women will apply for a promotion when they have uh-huh. 120% of the criteria. Men apply, this is a mass generalisation, but men apply when they have 60% because they know that they can learn the other 40. Totally logical. Women will lose out every time just on timing because they, they apply too late. So I think we, not just women, but everyone who's a bit hesitant about negotiating more pay, more responsibilities or whatever, you have to be willing to have the conversation because even our superiors are humans after all, even if you're the most deserving, if you're not making noise or reminding them of that, how can they remember? They've got enough stuff going on by themselves. Schedule meetings, have conversations, ask the question. But the big thing to remember is when you're pitching something like that, don't pitch why you want it. You have to pitch why it's good for them. <laughs> Remember your audience. And it's the same with selling things. Like who are you speaking to? Make it an easy decision for them. Show them why you meet the criteria. 
not like I want this because it would help me. You want to do this because it will help you kind of thing. Um, and it's hard. It's so freaking uncomfortable. I am so bad at having conversations with superiors about anything, which is why I just don't have superiors anymore. But learn how to book a meeting and broach the subject and push through, through the discomfort because, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get really. Um, last question of the career section. Would you consider starting a mentoring program or platform for young women who want to start a conversation slash explore creative side hustles on top of their usual nine to five jobs? Oh my God. So many people asked about this. It's so lovely. And I get, I reckon once a week, a full pitch for someone to be mentored, like who wants me to mentor them, which is the most flattering. And I don't even know what I would say, (laughs) but I would really love to do that. I just don't think that one-on-one mentoring, I just don't have any more time to do it one-on-one to the level that I would like to be able to do it. Um, But I would love to be able to do it in a group context or some kind of setup like that. So there's something I'm working on that's really exciting that's coming out soon, which I haven't told you about, Bim, but I will. What? Offline. What the hell? um, Which I will share soon. But I also would love to do something a little bit more structured and a little bit more neighborhood focused. So I don't know how I'll nut that out. But I will start thinking Exciting. about it. Exciting. I love mentoring. You know, I'm an advocate know. for mentoring. But also knowing us, every time I say, I'm going to work on those really exciting, like then seven months later, I still haven't done it. No, I'm sure really sorry, guys. We still also have the Pinot Picasso, <laughs> the bike thing. We have so many things on the cards. It's just been like a really crazy year. <laughs> um, so we have two sections left. Oh, what? A- I thought we were up to Fast Fire. I thought so too. Oh, lifestyle. Oh, should we do this in the next episode? I was going to say, do you want to? Yeah, to the next episode. And yeah. you can expand that those questions based on whatever questions you might get. Yeah. From now until then. Yeah, okay. Okay, guys, it's one one hour and twenty minutes. We're gonna take a break and uh, we will release the next half with the lifestyle questions and the fast fire questions, which I will list now so that you know not to look for them in this episode and we'll listen to them next week. Thank you guys for joining and listening. CCA. I need a whistle bad.